Before we get into this week's podcast, I wanted to share a unique opportunity for any developers in our audience. The International Consortium of Journalists, in partnership with the 2022 Neo4j Connected Data Fellowship, is searching for a dedicated developer to help utilize graph databases to strengthen reporting. ICIJ used Neo4j to crack the Panama Papers in 2016, the Paradise Papers in 2017, and the Pandora Papers in 2021. The developer who is chosen for this fellowship will join ICIJ's team for 10 months to help make sense of complex data and uncover stories inside networks. The deadline for applying is this Saturday, June 11th. You'll find more information about this fellowship at ICIJ.org. And now, enjoy the podcast. We've had Nobel Prize winners write for us, and some of them are new writers that are up-and-coming voices. And it's that group of people that helps us look at how to think about a place, how to think about the country, and get a portrait of it as it is right now. For us old timers, where is one of the five W's? It's the location, the place that a story happens. For travel writers, where can be the window through which we gain a greater understanding to other cultures and of other people? I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Kira Brunner-Dawn is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Stranger's Guide, a travel publication that explores the power of place-based journalism to break down stereotypes and foster global citizenship. With Stranger's Guide, Kira and fellow co-founder Abby Rappaport are aiming to breathe life into the dying foreign correspondent model. Kira, welcome to It's All Journalism. Hi, thanks for having me. Before we get to Stranger's Guide, which I do want to talk about because it's I'm really kind of excited about what you're doing, you and Abby are doing. You know, tell me about your journey as a journalist. How'd you become a journalist and how did you end up at the, at, uh, the Stranger's Guide? Right. Okay. So I became a journalist, I think, in a way a lot of people did, where you just start doing it. I didn't go to journalism school. I was studying in undergrad Russian literature and philosophy. And I think one thing that got me into it is I was raised by very far left-leaning parents, kind of Marxist parents. And so I was always sort of told about the Soviet Union and drawn to these stories of international revolution. And that was deep in my psyche as a child. So when I was a teenager, an early adult, I traveled to Eastern Europe, sort of looking for this story of my childhood past. And it was the first year I got there was 1991. So everything was collapsing. And I kind of arrived first in the Czech Republic and then in the former Yugoslavia as everything was exploding. And I hadn't thought about being a journalist, but all of a sudden I just knew I wanted to be there. I wanted to see what was happening. I wanted to be where history was happening. So I spent actually the next 10 years going back and forth between New York City and Eastern Europe, Moscow, mostly the former Yugoslavia, Hungary, Czech Republic, and working any way I could as a journalist. The first time I got there was in 1991, 92. And I remember going to Zagreb and staying at a hotel and the top floors of the hotel were all UN blue helmet peacekeepers. And the bottom floors of the hotel were all refugees from Bosnia. And I would hang out and drink with the UN guys. And then I would interview and talk with the refugees and they would stand outside every day to get their one bowl of stew and their half a loaf of bread. And I just realized this is what I wanted to do. 
And I was 19 at the time. I had no idea how to do it. So I went back to New York. I started working in magazines, small magazines, and tried to get myself over there as much as possible. I also simultaneously decided that I wanted to stay a student. So I went to graduate school in New York. I went to the new school for social research and I went to graduate school in political philosophy there. And I was working, I think around that time that I was at the new school, I was also working at Descent Magazine. So I was writing a bit, I was traveling as a journalist and going to graduate school. It was a pretty fun time. And you know, when you're young, you can do all those things. Then as I got older and had kids, got married, I actually got a job at Lapham's Quarterly, which was a history magazine. It was started by Lewis Lapham, who was the editor of Harper's Magazine for years. And I was Lewis's first editorial hire. I was the executive editor of Lapham's Quarterly for about eight years. And when we started that magazine, it was literally Lewis, his secretary of 25 years, one intern and me. That taught me a lot about how you start a project. And I learned a lot through that and had a wonderful time there as well. So that's sort of like my career trajectory. Okay. I like how you're indoctrinated by your parents to be sort of, I guess, John Reed. You're going, you named it, you're baby. All I wanted to do was, you know, <laughs> send me to cover the, the revolution. World. That's, that was my dream. And instead I show up and there's not a revo Russian revolution. Instead, everything is crumbling. But, you know, good for you for going over and recognizing that there was something there to, to write about and to share and developing that desire to do that. So how did you end up hooking up with Abby and uh, starting to Stranger's Guide? So Abby and I met at Lapham's Quarterly. She was working there at a time and then was on the board. We were friends and colleagues to an extent. And we sort of kept a friendship over the years and we had dabbled a few times after I had left the quarterly with ideas of starting something or getting involved in another magazine that was already running. And we had some meetings about it and we were playing around with ideas. And finally, we just sort of looked at each other. And it's funny, we each tell the story exactly the opposite. I always say that she came to me and said, hey, do you have an idea for a magazine? And she says that I came to her and said, hey, do you want to do something? But we basically had this like moment where we both realized we wanted to work together. We wanted to start something. We, we worked well together and we wanted to build something. And so Abby and I are the co-founders of Stranger's Guide. And we knew it, we wanted it to be in the travel space, but it definitely wasn't going to be a traditional travel magazine. It wasn't going to be where to go and what to eat and where to stay. We wanted to play around with what it meant to think about place. And I think that does in many ways come from my own experience as a journalist and spending time talking to people and really the curiosity that you have as a journalist when you're covering another country. So I remember I had, when we were first starting Stranger's Guide, I had on my desk an old, you know, Baedeker from, for Austria. And it was like, I can't remember if it was 1896 or something like that, you know, and it, it, it lists all the places that you need to see and the historical monuments. And we were thinking about that and sort of what it meant to think about the Baedeker of our time. That wasn't so much the grand tour of Europe, but was actually a much more intimate look at a place and all the kinds of places that don't usually get covered. And so we started playing around and looking at these old 18th and 19th century guidebooks called Stranger's Guides. So Stranger's Guides were a real thing that people wrote they were like these little booklets that you could buy that told you 
important information you would need, where a boarding house was, where the best brothel was, in fact, who the best madam was at the brothel, whether there was a ferry that like helped you cross that river or not. And what was great about them is that they were really quirky and they were quirky because they weren't written by travel writers. They were written by regular folks who were on the road traveling and gave you that information. So we sort of took that idea, the quirkiness and the intimacy and tried to blend that into a travel magazine that was written by people in the place that they were. Interesting. Could you sort of expand on the idea of place and what you mean? You know, I, th- I understand what you mean by it, but I kind of want to talk through what that means from a reporter or a storyteller's point of view. So I think like, if you'll allow me, I think the best way to get at is to talk about how we put together an issue. Okay, let's do okay, that. Okay, cool. So basically, each- Give me the secret, come yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> you're sitting old. what should I tell I'm him? I'm going to tell him, man. Yeah, I'm going to tell him. <laughs> okay. All right. So each issue of the magazine is a different place. It's either a city or a country or sometimes a region. So we've done Moscow. We've done Mexico City. We've done the Caribbean. We've done Scandinavia. We've done Ireland as examples of these kinds of regions and or cities. Then within it, we have long form narratives, We have some investigative journalism. We have one piece of fiction. We have two or three long photo essays. And we have these other things that we call sort of these boxes of information that are created in-house that give you this quirky bits of information about the place. They're not travel information per se, but they're unusual bits and, and thoughts about the place itself. The interesting thing is that we don't send journalists over to the country to report on it. 80 to 90% of all of our writers are from whatever country we're covering. So the first thing I do when putting together an issue is create an advisory board of people from that country. And this is made up of journalists, novelists, academics, artists, photographers. And I sit down with them and we talk through, I mean, sit down, I call them on the phone. (laughs) In my dreams, I sit down with them. They're all over the world. And I talk through what are the themes that we need to cover? Who are the writers that we should reach out to? What's going on at that moment? Try to get a picture of what's happening and who we should talk to. I then fly to the country, usually when it's not COVID, and I basically meet over two weeks. I stay in the country and I basically meet with as many writers and artists that I possibly can and commission the pieces on the ground there by people from the country. And some of them are internationally known. We've had Nobel Prize winners write for us. And some of them are new writers that are up and coming voices. And it's that group of people that helps us look at how to think about a place, how to think about the country and get a portrait of it as it is right now. I don't know if that entirely answers your question. Yeah, this is one of the things that sort of got me excited about this interview is that, I mean, you're talking about the stranger's guide from a hundred years ago, which were quirky, but they were also, you know, practical. You know, you wanted to know where the good whorehouse was. You wanted to know where you're going to be able to cross this river. So there was practical information, but it also, you had that perspective of the person who was there and doing it. And I think most people, their understanding of travel guides or even travel websites, they sort of are providing you with, you know, here are the activities to do, here are the things you need to see, and almost creating a, 
I don't know, an itinerary for you, but also, you know, presenting to you that this is that experience to traveling to Bangkok. This is what you need to do when you're there. What you're doing sounds very different in that it's partly the perspective of people who actually live there and kind of understand things that are going on. Are there practical things in it that are going to help you to find the best hotels or anything like that or the best restaurants to eat at? Or is it more about the idea of really experiencing the place that that you're you're going to visit? Right. Or that you're reading about that you one day may visit? Right. So we have no travel information. We do not tell you where to stay, where to eat, what to do. There's a million apps for that. This is not at all what we can provide. What we do is tell you what's going on politically in the country. What are the stakes of some of the arguments? And there are certain themes that we find that we go to consistently with each issue. So there's always something about food. There's always something about music. And there's always something about sports. Those are more traditional themes. I'll also add there, we actually just hired Emily Nemens, who was the former editor-in-chief of Paris Review, as our sports editor which kind of speaks a lot to how we approach a story. So rather than a straight on sports story, we've actually hired someone with a literary sensibility who loves sports to play around and think about the best kind of way to cover sports in each country. But we also, besides those kind of more traditional ways of approaching travel, we also usually always cover refugees and LBGTQ issues in each issue of the magazine. And so I think that those are kind of the themes that we that reoccur again and again. And then we find the writers from that country that can really break down what's happening. So we don't tell you which hotel to stay in, but we will tell you what's happening in terms of trans rights in Tehran, for example, where oddly enough, it's illegal to be homosexual, but it is not illegal to get a gender changing surgery because there's a preference that people would pick one gender or the other. That kind of thing is revealing about a culture and about a country and tells you a lot. And that's the way that we try to approach it. But I actually think our Tehran guide. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask you about that one in particular. So tell me about it. What went into doing you know doing that and what what did you take away from this assignment and what do you think that the, the Strangers Guide provides? So Obviously, Tehran is a place that would be incredibly difficult for many Westerners to travel to, but specifically Americans. We don't have diplomatic relations. I did have the chance to go to Tehran once, but that was in 2003. And obviously, that was I wasn't able to go this time. So sometimes I'm lucky enough when putting together one of these issues to work really closely with another journalist or writer. And this was the case with our Tehran issue. I had contacts in the country that I could lean on and talk to. And then I also had a novelist and a professor here named Salar Abdal, who really helped work with me very closely on putting together a lot of the pieces. And so he introduced me to a number of the writers in Tehran. And our idea was to look at the city as it is lived, not through the stereotypes. So a lot of what we try to do is upend your sensibilities of the sort of stereotypical look at the place. When it's a place like Tehran or Lagos, Nigeria, there are particular stereotypes that you have about something in, a, in an area that you may not have gone to. We like to upend those and sort of show the daily life as a way of revealing what the place is really like. Whereas 
the other thing that we do is that there are lots of places that people think they know very well, the Mediterranean or Ireland. And we also hope that we can attempt to upend the stereotypes of those places as well and show you something that you didn't think about in a country that you thought you knew well. So at any rate, going back to the Tehran issue, we wanted to show what life was like. So for example, we have a great piece that opens it about a sports writer actually, who runs a sports magazine, her and her sister spending the evening trying to traverse the city, getting from their apartment to the stadium where they've been allowed for the first time ever to watch a soccer or football match as women. Women are not allowed into the stadium. They're televising a huge soccer match and they wanna go. And it's this sort of epic journey, both in how they cross the city and how they're able to actually experience being able as women to go to the soccer match. Also, one of my favorite things is we have another piece that's all little vignettes from different writers and people living in the city about their neighborhood. So it's everything from the kind of high-end nouveau riche neighborhoods in Northern Tehran to another writer talking about his loft that he lives in with a bunch of other artists where they're all making films and trying to score heroin and having parties that basically feels like it could have been Williamsburg 1996. And how you juxtapose what we think of a country with how there are so many different ways in which life there is being lived. We also have a piece about food, but rather than it just be a traditional piece about food, we have it written by Jason Reza, who was the Washington Post journalist who was imprisoned and accused of being a spy and imprisoned in Tehran for almost three years. And he wrote a piece called Eating in Exile about his favorite little dive spots in Tehran and how he used to take other foreign journalists to his favorite spots there in the country. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that what we try to do is show a place in an unexpected way by actually having the people there give you a slice of their lives. Yeah, I think what's interesting about this is that when you think about travel writing as opposed to a traditional travel guide, which is more of a how-to book, you know, is like visiting Disneyland. You're, <laughs> these are the things this culture is supposed to be known for, and these are how, where you can go experience that. But you don't get the authenticity. And a lot of people, you know, that's one of the things they travel for rather than just read books is to actually go somewhere and to experience the you know the authentic country or city that they're visiting. It seems more like that's the experience you're trying to create with the stranger's guide. And I think it's really smart to use people and writers, you know, local writers, I should say, who are going to have that different perspective. They're going to have that lived in perspective of this is what my city means to me. And I really think that that speaks to the larger changes within journalism. So there's the death of the foreign bureau, right? We no longer have all over the world, American-based or Western-based news organizations with their bureaus sending people out to cover a place. And there's something both great about that loss because there's a colonialist aspect to it that's left over from only I, you know, as the American can go in talk to people and give you the true, you know, God's eye view with an authority about what's really happening. Even if I don't speak the language, even if I'm relying on translators and fixers. So there's something that's kind of wonderful about that loss. And then there's something terrible about it, which is that we don't get the kind of international coverage that we've traditionally gotten. 
And so what I would hope is that we're in this moment as journalism is unraveled in so many different ways in which we can think about, okay, how can we tell the stories that are happening around the world without imposing a Western view on it completely, but also not opening it up to, well, anybody can post anything on the internet. So we've you know, democratized journalism with absolutely no standards. And now we have the problem of fake news and we don't know if things are verified and we can't really believe anything. So how do you balance those tensions? And I feel like in our small way, what we're trying to do is balance that tension by relying not on the Western journalists flying in and working with a fixer, but kind of actually going straight to the fixer themselves, who, as you know, traditionally are journalists anyway. So we go and talk to the journalists in country and ask them to write. And we do a lot of things in translation. You know, we just did an issue on Vietnam. A lot of the pieces were translated from Vietnamese into English, and we worked on that. Like, we'll hire the translators for that. I'm also thinking about this idea of the fixer, which, I mean, you're a podcast about journalism and how it's done, so I'm sure this is something that you've thought about a lot, which is, I wish that there was more space now to actually allow the journalists from the country themselves rather than work, have them work for a Western news organization where they work as a translator and use all of their contacts and are paid a day rate to create a story that then gets written by a foreign correspondent. If they could write, which they usually are in their own country anyway, in their own language, and have that translated into English or into other language so that it's seen, I think that would be incredibly exciting. And that's something that we try to do. And I'm seeing this played out in like real time with Ukraine, a country that I worked in in 2017. And I worked with a wonderful fixer there, a journalist. And we went down to the Russian front and interviewed people who had just been actually fighting the day before and were wounded in a local hospital. And it was very intense and really wonderfully powerful. That same journalist that I worked with is now living through a war, covering that war. He had to put his own wife and two teenage daughters on a train for Poland, and they're now safely in Germany. And he obviously can't leave both because he's a man, but also because he is a journalist and doing his work. But no one's going to him and asking him for his own documentation. Instead, he's working with a foreign agency and working as a fixer for them. And I think turning that old tradition on its head a little bit is a political act in and of itself and is a way of showing place in a different sensibility. And that in our small way and in our cultural way is what we're hoping to do. And I think, you know, going that way, a very smart idea in that you're going to get, you know, the perspective of somebody who has skin in the game may not, his or her opinion would be, would be, informed by colonialism, but he would not necessarily be, you know, presenting it in those tropes to an audience who, you know, views uh, their country uh, in in that way, which is interesting. It's really smart. You know, how many of these issues have you done? I think we've done 13. So, you know, what in your, your perception has changed since the first issue? I mean, always when you when you start a project, you have some ideas about what you want to do. And then once you start doing it and you get better at it by, 
issue 10, one would hope, you figured out, okay, this is the way we need to do it. And this is, these are the things we want to focus on and, and shine light on. No, that's a really interesting question and super hard to answer. Um, I feel like one of the biggest things that's changed is we've staffed up. What started as just a few of us basically commissioning and editing every single piece is now a larger project. And the diversity of our staff is a big deal to me because we have a lot of people on staff that have one parent or two from other countries. And we also have staff based in other countries. And so that helps us even within our own core, think about approaching different stories that, that we might not have originally thought of when it was just a few of us commissioning everything. And that's good because it's going to help you give you those different perspectives. And I also like the the fact that you do make an effort to tell, you know, not the usual story that you do tell, you know, two women going into a soccer game or you're, you're focusing on LGBT or, or trans issues in, in a particular country to sort of reveal, you know, issues that are in our own countries that we're still sort of grappling with. But, you know, how does that play out in another country that has different traditions? And, you know, what does that mean to a traveler? who's going there, you know, what type of feedback have you gotten on this? Yeah, no, totally. I think that what we often get is people who toss the issue into their bag when they're on their way, but they've also got their own travel itinerary and they've got the place that helps them with the hotel and the uh, restaurants. But we're that book you take to give you a sense of the place. That's one aspect of it. And I think the other one is we're a great armchair read, you know, when COVID started and travel completely shut down, we got more subscribers than expected. And that's because you can read about the places that we cover as a way of gaining knowledge of that place and not necessarily as the guide to actually just what you're going to do there. I think those are the two ways that people really use us. Yeah. And what's, and you mentioned, this is the second time you mentioned COVID, but you know, as you're saying that I'm sitting here thinking, well, you've got your, you've got your writers embedded. So obviously COVID impacted you in some way, but the other way you were, set up to, you know, maybe take advantage of that, having those, those reporters and writers in a city that, that you physically weren't able to go to. That's right. That's right. And we were using Zoom as a staff long before COVID because we have our business offices are in Austin, Texas. I'm in Oakland, California with our managing editor and a few other editors. We have editors in New York City. We have an editor in um, Delhi. So we were already working on a lot of time differences and in that way. So that did help a lot. What you just described there then is a new model for the digital foreign correspondent. You establish these these connections in the countries that you you feel is necessary to have, you know, people on the ground in. And when you have a situation, well, when you have a situation like uh, what's going on in Ukraine, you've already established relationships and you have people who, you know, that know the process and can write about it and report about it. It's very smart all around. <laughs> I applaud that. So where have you not been? And you know, what are you going to be working on next? Right. As far as the stranger's guide? So we just finished our Vietnam issue, which is on newsstands. Now we are working on an issue on New Orleans. We're in the throes of that right now. After that is Johannesburg, South Africa. We're playing around with the idea of a special issue on Ukraine, just because we have so many contacts there. And it would be nice to approach it, not necessarily 
in the minute by minute of how the war is playing out, but to look at what's happened in Ukraine in the last 10 years and the creation of a democracy and how things have played out with Russia and within the space itself so that people could have a larger sense of what is actually being lost and what the struggles were before the war began. I mean, the funnest thing for us to do is to think up what countries we want to cover right? We're going to do the Amazon. This is a this is a new thing for us. We're going to do the Amazon River as an issue. So that's like looking at a geographical place. We've thought about that before of doing the Himalayas or a mountain range, but we decided to do the river. And I'm lucky enough to get to go to the Amazon this summer and take a river trip with a photographer who works with us, our associate photographer, who's done a lot of wonderful photo essays and has worked in the Amazon for years. And so we're gonna do a reported piece together. One of the things that's important to me is this ability to get to go to the countries and meet with people and commission the pieces. Obviously that's just fun. I mean. Like it's a great gig to get to go around the world and meet some of the most interesting people. And if you're really curious, like I am, and want to talk to everyone you ever meet all the time, it's great. But it's also useful in terms of, you can do these things by phone and you can do them by Zoom. And we do try to get advisors in each country to help us commission those pieces. So that can really work. But a conversation with a writer or the potential writer is where the meat really is, right? So you sit down and you think you've got an idea. They think they've got an idea. You talk through the piece. They talk through their pitch. And you're like, okay, yeah, this is it. It's going to work. And then right before you're about to like stop the conversation, they say, oh, yeah, yeah. by the way, I wanted to tell you about. And then they say this amazing thing. And you realize, no, that's the story. And those kind of moments only happen when you really get to talk through the pieces with people. And that's why I think our model of sending our editors to the country, not to report, but to meet and talk and commission is what gives us this other look at the place, the unexpected, because even for us, it becomes unexpected where the story is going to go. That's nice because when you do, when you talk to somebody, you can, you can have that aha moment and go, oh yeah, you know, maybe, maybe we actually should do us have a story about this, or maybe this should be written from a different way than, than we, we at first thought. Kira, you know, this is an amazing thing that you and Avi put together. I have not read (laughs) Stranger's Guide. I've read about it, but I'm going to do that because I find what you're doing really fascinating. I think probably a lot of journalists will. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. This was lovely. It was great to meet you. I appreciate being on it. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>